Welcome to the Theatre of Others podcast. My name is Adam Marple, and I'm the co-artistic director of the Theatre of Others. With the COVID-19 pandemic forcing a shutdown and re-evaluation of space and gathering, we at the Theatre of Others are thinking about what stories we need and how best we can share them. We believe space is psychology, and it informs the way in which an audience interacts and reacts to what is presented to them. We create uniquely theatrical events in bespoke sensory performance spaces crafted to encourage curiosity and grant the audience permission to commune with the play. Now that that space has moved online, how can we encourage interaction and action amongst an audience virtually? The Theatre Brothers produces plays that both welcome and challenge the audience. We are committed to international collaboration and are a laboratory that helps artists grow through intensive study of their craft. On the podcast today, joining from Melbourne, Australia, are Booty Miller, co-artistic director of the Theatre of Others, and myself in Puebla, Mexico. The Theatre of Others creates a shared community of artists and audiences for the purpose of exploring the most profound issues of our lives and times. We believe the play watches the audience. The audience is necessary, and they are witness to what happens. And you get to be witness to us making that happen. The purpose of this podcast is to open up our process and let you in. We're peeling back the curtain, so to speak, and encouraging you to follow along, to ponder, prod, and question, to join us and criticize us if need be. Being a witness is no passive task, and it requires much from you. Are you up for the journey? Hi, Adam. Hi, Booty. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm really good. It's really spring here. It's warm. I was like wearing my normal like fall clothes and then like I got hot. I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? And also, by the way, I'm back in the closet. Just to make you happy, I'm back in the closet. <laughs> well, it's it's not, I'm not meaning to put you there culturally. I'm not meaning to put <laughs> you there, you know, uh, in, in any other reason but aesthetically in that you sound different in this place than you did in the last podcast. So. Yes. For all of our <laughs> listeners, Adam has put me in the closet once again. I wanted to, I wanted to, you know, really explore my new desk and my new office, but it's just too loud in there. You'll see from the last recording that there's a lot of rattle rumble in there. So, um, Adam being the stickler and the director with integrity that he he is, he told me that I had to go back <laughs> into the closet. So now, ladies and gentlemen, and non-binary conforming people, I'm back in the closet. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you can move your desk in the closet. I mean, you're going to be spending so much time in there. You might as well just <laughs> get used to it. <laughs> yeah, but it's not big enough. But I spent enough time in here anyway because, oh my god, this quarantine. Oh my god, we're still in stage four lockdown, and I'm and and, and as we're talking to you, we're, we're we're supposed to get the next kind of um, protocols for what's going to happen in Melbourne because all the numbers are going have gone down. But you know, just because mm-hmm. the numbers have gone down, we can't just like all of a sudden just open up. It's going to be a slow, you know, slow open. But we don't even know if he's going to. If we're going to be held um, in for another two weeks, it's just, uh, so basically what I do to sate my, my boredom and my need to feel fabulous is I do online shopping. Oh, God. <laughs> it's gotten really bad. But I'm going to look oh. so amazing when people finally get to see me in like 2022. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, I'll be like, this. these are the fashions of 2020. <laughs> yeah. 2020 realness. 
Yeah, 2020 realness. <laughs> yeah. Uh, garbage honey. bags and garbage bags <laughs> yeah, and masks. Yeah. Throwing kicks and splits and twirls and things and shows and all. <laughs> yeah. How are you doing in Mexico? How's Mexico? We've gone from red to orange, which well, that's is good. Wait, no, is that bad? Well, what? No, no, is... it's 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 the direction you want to go. You want to go toward green, like a green oh, light. Okay. So, um, but yeah, I mean, school's supposed to start back in the on the twenty first, and we've all just kind of collectively agreed. Even if we're allowed to come back, we're just not going to. It's <laughs> every single student's like. I mean, yeah, I could, but every teacher's like, mm, I mean, I've, t- I've done all the things I need to, to come back on campus, but I think, I think, I think we're good. I think, uh, if we actually get to the green light, there's no way we're going to get to the green light. It's just not possible. Um, if mm. every single university in the United States is proving to you that you cannot open schools and be safe, then world pay attention and, and don't open your schools. So, um, <laughs> restaurants have, restaurants have slowly started opening. Um, you know, like 20% capacity, which, you know, ends up being like three people in a restaurant spaced mm. out. And so, so, you know, it, it's something it's, it's starting to get there, but no, it's still quiet and everybody's still moving on. I don't know how people are surviving in Mexico. I really don't, you know, I hear all my friends in America who, when their $600 check ran out and the government was arguing over whether they were going to give them a $400 check or a $200 check, I was just thinking that in Mexico, there is nothing. There is no safety net. There is nothing for anybody to, to, to depend on. The government is going to give them anything. And I'm just, I'm just looking at the businesses that are just shutting down That's around so me sad. and going, I don't know how this family is going to survive. I don't know how these people are going to pay for groceries, let alone rent, let alone anything else. It's... Yeah, and 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 of course, everybody is still hoping that the university opens because with the university comes money and you know students and things like that. And mm. university is not going to open, and it's going to be you know twenty twenty one before any of that changes. And I just can't imagine the landscape how much it's going to how different it's going to look because of that. Not to put uh, the podcast on a downer. <laughs> well, look, I, 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 we are living, we are truly living the black, the life of Black Mirror. Like it's, I'm, I, I we're, we're, this is like a really long Black Mirror episode. Because really <laughs> I was watching the, the VMAs. If that wasn't an episode of Black Mirror, that Lady Gaga performance, my God, it's Lady Lady Gaga throughout the entire evening with each with a different mask. It's like. <laughs> Uh, I'm like, okay, what well, I have another question though, because I haven't really, I just, in, in this day and age of, of be really being able to be selective with like my daily entertainments because I'm, you know, either <laughs> writing a PhD, writing for a chapter, doing admin, and then trying to find some mm-hmm. time to kiss my husband. Mm-hmm. The VMAs is like at the bottom of my list. <laughs> so I actually haven't like even seen who was nominated, but I, my question is, was Beyonce nominated? For what? For everything. <laughs> Just for being? What do you mean? Does she, she have an album this year? The I Lion know, King. I didn't see that. I don't watch things. Oh, my God. I don't listen to music. I don't uh, listen to music. Well, I don't and this is, the why, li- this is why Lady Gaga won. <laughs> why people <laughs> because, don't listen because to Beyonce because they're afraid of her now. <laughs> I'm not afraid of her. <laughs> 
I don't listen to music because I don't listen to music. I listen to I listen to podcasts. You know this about me. I can't get I That's can't true. listen to music. It gets stuck in my head. Okay. Well, all I have to say is, if Beyonce was nominated, which I'm sure she was, she was robbed because that. Uh, you've got Disney Plus. Why aren't you watching it? I, I have watched it. And? Uh, no, I, no. Oh, I, I watched Black is King. I haven't watched Lion King. Oh, Black is King. It's the same thing. It's yeah. based on The Lion King. Yeah, well, then I don't need to watch Lion King then. Thank well, you that's for what I meant. time of having... <laughs> I meant Black is King. You know you know my brain, how my brain works. All right, so Black mm-hmm. is King. Was that nominated? Yeah. No, I don't think it was an album. I think it was just a movie. I don't know if... I don't know if... Why would I know this? Why would I know anything about pop culture? I have no... I, I'm going to let you finish, but Beyonce had the best album of the year. You were good, but Beyonce should have been nominated and she should have won. Is that what you want me to say? You want me to Kanye my way into the VMAs and, and kick Lady Gaga off the stage with her silver mask? Is that what you want me to do? Well, the, well, the issue is they probably would have listened to you because you're a white man. They wouldn't have thought you were crazy. Yes. They'd be like, oh, yeah, he's right. Yeah, Beyonce should have oh, got I it. Know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, this random guy. Yeah. <laughs> this, guy that, this guy that clearly gets music. He clearly gets it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. No, but I, if you haven't seen Black is King, if you haven't listened to that album, my God. The it is. It's actually song. really amazing. Ah, uh, bigger. It's beautiful. Uh, it's incredible, y'all. You got you. I, if I, anything, I, you got to get Disney Plus for that. I can't talk about the music because clearly I don't know anything about music. <laughs> but the aesthetics of it is beautiful. It's a oh. beautiful film or beautiful long music video. I can't really tell what it is, but it's beautiful. It's gorgeous. It's full of really amazing. It's a flitio. It's a flitio. With, I guess there's music underneath it. I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't recognize it. There is music underneath it. It's a whole music video. It's a flitio. It's a flitio. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, with some, it's a mooflitio. You're just making shit up now. I don't know what you're saying anymore. Look, I'm a PhD student. I'm allowed to make up words. (laughs) Yeah. That's, that's the realest thing that any PhD student has ever said. I can just make things up. I can make things up, and there's only like four of the people on the planet that know what I'm talking about, and they know that they've made stuff up too, so they're not going to argue with me because otherwise the whole house of cards will come tumbling down because none of it is real. All it's made up. Amen. (laughs) Hallelujah. Speak to the motherfucking PhD. As I start to look into my own programs to get my own. It's a Mufidio. Mufidio. Yep. Hashtag you move video. You heard it here, folks. That's right. I want this trending on Twitter by the afternoon. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, see, that you have to do your research, baby. You have to do your research. You got to know what's going on. Mm-hmm. If we don't know yeah. what's going on, then um, uh, hello or hello. Yeah. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Remember. Oh, I got before. Before I forget. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I, it's, it's, it's the spring. best introduction of a podcast we've ever done. I've got spring brain right now, everyone. I'm sorry. <laughs> but before I forget, we, I got a phone call <laughs> from Sarah Caputo. And she told me it's dobbing. It's called dobbing. When someone's a kiss ass, it's dobbing. <laughs> and she said that the way that I was like trying to figure out the word was killing her dead. It was like she was dying inside. So she called me immediately and said, 
this is what it is. And, and but the thing was, I was like, I'm confused. What are you talking about? Because that podcast was so long ago. It was like that was, last that month. Was five podcasts ago. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, why is she yelling at me? And why is she so angry? <laughs> no, she wasn't yelling and she wasn't angry. But you know, she's loud. <laughs> we we did say if we get things wrong to call us on it. Yeah, they just true. called a month later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, she's doing a show. Well, she's doing a show. She's, uh, she, oh God, she's doing a, a movement piece, an installation piece. Um, and you know how incredible of a dancer she is. So it's just like, I'm just yeah. really excited about that. So once we have more info on that, y'all, we'll let you know. But yeah, Sarah mm. Caputo's back in the game, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> so what are we going to talk about today, Adam? Today, we are talking about dramaturgy, which is... Mm-hmm. A confusing term all around, no matter where you are in the world. But, but a necessary uh, term, nonetheless. An incredibly necessary term. So I'm, I'm glad we're actually going to talk about it. Uh, my, my girlfriend asked me what, what today's podcast was about. And I said, dramaturgy. And she said, oh, cool, playwriting. And it's interesting because oh. in, in Espanol, it's dramaturgia, which is what a playwright is called. So okay. there's where a lot of the confusion comes in. And dramaturgia is playwright. In a very German sense, a dramaturg is an actual person. Um, you know, the director can be a dramaturg. The actor can be a dramaturg. The playwright can act as dramaturg. You can have an outside dramaturg. So there's a lot to kind of cover to really kind of understand this role and really what a 21st century idea of a dramaturg is as well. Yeah. Mm, mm, mm. Well, look, from from both of our perspectives, but also from a perspective as a, of an actor and a director, dramaturgy, and that's why I mean, a direct, uh, writer as well. Dramaturgy is, is the, the guts of everything you do, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's how you actually do the research that's important for your particular specialty. So an actor's dramaturgy is different than a director's dramaturgy, which is different than the set designer's dramaturgy, which is different than the writer's dramaturgy. But they're all speaking in the same world, the same society and the same culture. But, but it's the point of view and the reference and how to embody it for an actor's perspective um, is, is really important. What, what, what's, why is it important for a director? Well, the director can, can't do everything. I mean, the director wants to do everything, but the director can't do everything. <laughs> and it's a thing where um, every director is going to do their research, but there's only so far that you can go. And then the question that you that is brought up in a rehearsal, something that is, um, if you're working with a living playwright and, and the playwright is there and, and working on the work, either, you know, it's a devised work or uh, a work that's being created, like we're working on with Stephen Galtney with Limb for Limb, um, or even if it's, you know, a classic work, something's going to come up and you have, you as a director have to move forward. You have to keep going. And so, yes, you can take a note and look at that later on. But if there's somebody that can do that for you and do it in a much better way, in a, in a way that is well-researched and knows how to handle those things and where to find those things. And then because they're a part of the process can also find the second and third level question to that thing that you've probably already thought of, but didn't bring up. It just streamlines the process and it opens it up for yourself as well. I mean, I, I do a lot of research before I, I start my play and I have a lot of thoughts coming in, but I always love having something. I always love having another person come in and basically uh, shine light on something else or show me the dead end that I'm going towards before I even get there. Hmm. That's what it it usually is is about is going, this is not going to bear fruit, Adam, and here's why. Mm -hmm. And that's fantastic to find out. That's fantastic to go, ah, 
ah, if I, I was digging in, I was digging the wrong hole, you know, I was digging in the wrong direction. I, and now I have a new way to look at it. I go, oh, okay, this is, this is great. Share that with the actor, the actors, you know, mm-hmm. this actor's going to need that. The character's going to need this. Let's bring this up with the playwright when we meet after the rehearsals. Um, can you also find out about this? It's fantastic to have that. If you have a person that can do that, or if you have the ability to do it yourself, you have those skills yourself as well. Mm. Mm. Well, I, I think what we should do is take a break. And then when we come back is talk about, actually define what a dramaturg is. You know, because I have um, students who are like always confused because it gets thrown around so so flippantly yeah. that we should probably define it so that people can understand the perspective from which we're talking about a dramaturg and also to give yeah. our students and people that are listening and aspiring to make something and want to get the details of the world in a, in a accurate way. And then we can, then we can talk about bad dramaturgy. Yeah. Oh, is, 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 is the film cats on the list? <laughs> it is now. It is now. Oof. Oof. Did you see it? No, but I'm, I feel like I, I, I feel like I, I have to just so that I could, I could feel the, the, the weight of the world on my shoulders to watch that. I, I, I'm dying. I stay, to see I stay it. away. I stay away from musicals in general. Uh, we can have all kinds of people write in and call about, <laughs> about that if you want, but I just, I feel what I feel about musicals fight me about it. Um, but that one, you know, that's a whole nother conversation. That's probably a knee conversation. That's a knee conversation right there. Okay. Let's take a break. <laughs> Let's get yeah, a let's break a in break. it. Let's let's get some water before we settle down for this this uh, conversation about dramaturgy. Take it away, Purple Planet. Purple Planet, we missed you. (laughs) (laughs) So, Adam. Yeah. What is the definition of a dramaturg? Lord, if I know. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's, this is, this is really the, it's, it it is, it's the most difficult thing. And I, I went to grad school with, uh, at a program that had a really, really, fantastic dramaturgy program and i i i worked with the folks in this dramaturgy program i have utmost respect for them but i still to this day can't give you a really good definition mm-hmm. and i'll be honest i'm not even sure that they can give you a really good definition either because it's so expansive it dips in a little bit of everything and the first time that i worked with a dramaturg i was really uh possessive of my territory uh-oh. Because I kept on thinking, I kept on thinking, you're doing my job. Why are you doing my job? Uh oh. Why are you doing the Why are you doing the thing that I should be doing? What are you doing? And it and it didn't work out really well, you know, because a, a dramaturg dramaturgs sometimes want to be directors. Dramaturgs sometimes want to be playwrights. Some, mm. I mean, they are. You know, they can be. So it can be seen as what, you're stepping on my territory. You're stepping on my toes here. 
versus what it should be, which is seen as another part of a relationship, but really understanding what that relationship is. And that relationship has to be defined at the outset of every single time because people are not used to working with dramaturgs. Maybe they're used to working with a literary director. Maybe mm -hmm. they're used to working with a living playwright. Maybe they're used to working with, um, you know, an, an overall designer, not just a set designer, not just a lighting designer, but a production designer. But the dramaturg kind of fits in between all of those places and can work with every single one of those people. So you start to go, well, then what are you doing? Who are you? You know, are, are you part of the creative team? Are you part of the artistic team? Are you part of the production? You know, it's it's a very difficult kind of thing. And so definition-wise, there's really not a definition that I feel like I could strongly say this is what it means. You could go to any program of any grad school, you know, in the United States or probably the world and read the definition, and it's still a loose interpretation of what that means. Well, yeah. So I think I – think well, we have a fantastic dramaturgy program um, at the VCA, the University of Melbourne. Uh, it's headed by uh, Alison Campbell. She's she's badass. She's the shit. She's like the queen of queer uh, scholarship. Um, and her outlook and perspective on the role of the dramaturg is is so interesting because I think the conundrum that you were having of like what is a dramaturg what is the dramaturg um is essentially because so many places don't train the dramaturgs for the the essential need of what they're what they're there for and it's mm. it's for us to get get deeper into the history and deeper into the worlds that we're trying to create so you know if we're talking about an adaptation and we it's a dramaturg that can help with an adaptation of like okay this doesn't actually make any sense the way that the way that you're actually um um, envisioning uh, this the way to tell the story, it doesn't it doesn't correlate with actually where the where the story is coming from. They it, it's mm -hmm. it's one of those things where like they keep us they keep us on our toes and keep us current and keep us from doing really offensive things like Orientalism, uh, mm -hmm. uh, appropriation, um, uh, and 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 really looking at how the story is being told and helping us tell it from that perspective. And for an actor, it's invaluable to have those kinds of um, little um, pearls that the dramaturg gives because, like you said, we can't do all the research on our own. But when a dramaturg is essentially the one who's driving the, 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 the deep research the, the deep research inside of inside of the storytelling, it can be really exciting. So for an actor, it's got to be something that you can create into behavior. So if I'm playing... And 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 so we and we're dealing with if we're dealing with uh, uh, non traditional casting, you know, if you're dealing with non traditional casting, you have to deal with the the body that's in the space and the body that's in the role. You can't just throw a, a black person, an Asian person, um, a, a Latin person, uh, an indigenous person, uh, uh, and 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 just say, okay, well, we're we're not gonna we're not gonna discuss that. You know, there's an all white family with <laughs> with with uh, an Asian an Asian child. You know what? What? What is the relationship here? How? How does it fit into this story? And the dramaturgs are really good at at creating worlds for us to figure that out. You know, and so yes, we all do our research, but the it's like the difference between glass and crystal. I tell my students this all the time when it comes to when 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 there's taksu in a performance, when there's when that performance is just like. Ooh, and the voice is just like 
ah, and it's like the difference between glass and crystal. When you hit a glass, it has a chime, but when you hit crystal, it it just it hits another it hits a whole another stratosphere in our ears. You know, it's like, mm. ooh, yeah, mm-hmm. oh, I just love that sound. And that's what a dramaturg can do for a production. They can put those mm. kinds of, de- they can help you put those kinds of details in your work that makes it shine. Mm. You know, and I think like directors, like the really big ones need that kind of help because of the kind of, you know, output that they have on, 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 on productions, you know? That's, well, that's what I learned is, the dramaturg is supposed to be the the advocate for the play so that the director can have their vision and make a playground and the director is there to go, ah, 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 if you do that, you knock the legs out from under the table. But if you, you know, it's, go for it. Throw everything that you have at this play, but it doesn't make any sense anymore. You know, it's the person that stands up for the play. If the playwright is not there, it's the person that has to stand up for the play and say... But but this word means this. But this, if you do this, it has repercussions later on in the act with this. It's the person that's just kind of there to be the playwright's voice if the playwright can't be there or to be the go-between between the playwright and the director so that everybody can do their job without having to worry about railroading anybody else. You know, it's it's the thing of I've seen so many plays and so many directors who've just missed missed the mark. Because the vision, the vision of the play, the vision of the director was more important than the meaning of the play. And the play got lost, you know? Mm. And it's the thing where you can kind of, you can kind of see where, where the director or the dramaturg wasn't heard. Which is really interesting because, you know, when you think of a dramaturg and you think of dramaturgy, you think of German theater. German theater, which is just, you know, which can be crazy and you can throw anything at it. But there's an incredible amount of research. There's an incredible amount of, of, uh, uh, of something looked into and every, making sure that everything is kind of, you know, yes, we throw peanut butter at the wall, but we have a valid reason from the script why peanut butter was thrown at the wall. It wasn't just the director's <laughs> vision that we throw peanut butter at the wall. We have found why peanut butter makes sense here and the playwright is happy that there's peanut butter in the wall. Somebody could dig that out. It's one of those things where like, mm. you know, I've, I, have, I have dramaturg friends and – one of my, one of my uh, dear friends is a uh, dramaturg for Romeo Castellucci. Mm. And you, you look at, you look at his works and aesthetically they're just stunning. And, and sometimes they, they seem so far from their source material, but the research that he does, the research that she, that she does, Piazzandra de Matteo, she's an amazing dramaturg. Oh, I love Keeping, her. You remember her? Yeah. Yeah. And, awesome. and she's brilliant and keeping his vision Along with the source material, which is a lot of it is opera now. So you know that there's going to be people out there that, that know everything about these operas to keep <laughs> him and his vision in the libretto, in the score, in the world so that people aren't just like throwing up and leaving his shows. But they're going, OK, I never saw this before, but you're hmm. absolutely right. This was there the entire time and you dug it out. The dramaturg, you dug it out and hmm. helped the director make that vision true it's not it's not about reinf- it's not about reinforcing a director's vision or reifying a director's vision it's about it's about reinforcing the play and letting the direction go from there mm-hmm. it's what i've always found fascinating about dramaturgs well i think i what i would love to ask you is how does you know you know we've got our <laughs> we got our faves 
But I, I really want I really want to ask you about how does um, Evo von Hova's uh, adaptation work sit with you dramaturgically? I think um, he is he's one of those people that you know you either love him or loathe him, and I love his work. <laughs> I think too. his drama. I think his. I think his dramaturgy is on point. I mean, I know he's cutting. He's cutting things. You know, sometimes, sometimes he's even rearranging. Mm. But his dramaturgy is is it's it's almost bulletproof. You really can't fault him for his dramaturgy. Mm. Um, if I mean, I know. Give me we, some we examples. Talk about yeah. Give us. Give me some well, examples. Well, I mean, he did. He did. Uh, a view from the bridge and then turned around the next year and did crucible mm-hmm. and those two pieces i think you know those are the, those are the pieces that really kind of made his name in new york theater he was he was already doing things in europe in his in his company uh in the netherlands and in london and those mm-hmm. two pieces are really kind of what made his name in the united states because you know arthur miller is to americans as Shakespeare is to the mm-hmm. Brits. Like it's on a yeah. pedestal. You can't touch it. And what yeah. did he do? The very first thing is he got down in the mud and wrestled with it and showed that the text <laughs> is good. The yeah. text is good. And, you know, with a view from the bridge, you know, it, he stripped it down, made it into a gladiatorial combat, you know, even even design wise made that made it so that uh it's a wrestling match the entire time. Crucible, mm-hmm. he took it, you know, out of the Salem Times, put it in a kind of a we talked about this in the, in the podcast with Galtney, kind yeah. of a 20s schoolhouse thing, Love but it. really made you fear, really mm. made you understand what fear was. And it's it's his incredible research. I mean, he's got a book um, that was written about him in the last couple of years. I wish I had it on hand. I don't have it here with me. Um, Do you know what it's called? Yeah. Okay. So the book is Ivo von Hova from Shakespeare to David Bowie. And that, that I mean, that title really says a lot anyway, because he is... <laughs> he is going from I mean, the work that he's doing. He's doing Shakespeare. He's going through uh, the classic canon. He's doing uh, a- adaptations of movies for stage. So Cassavetes, Antonioni, he's, mm. he's adapted their films for stage. And then, of course, he uh, was the last person to work with David Bowie. He did David Bowie's musical uh, oh. before for, as, as David Bowie. Passed. But I heard that was shit. I heard that was like the worst. I heard it was really, really bad. Well, you, you know, it? it's a jukebox. It, well, no, it's but it's a jukebox musical. I mean, it's taking the mu- it's, I mean, it's it's taking the music of David Bowie and trying to make a story around it. But you know, it it is what it is. But anyway, the the idea is that he's 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 able to touch on all these things. And you know, what it talks about more than anything in that book, if you read that book, is it talks about his incredible research. I mean, mm. he works incredibly fast. Um, yeah, he does. I had a friend who I had a friend who was working on Network. Yeah, me too. Uh, that was on, uh, and she she's stage manager, and she was talking about how they had already done it in London, but they were coming in to they were coming in to uh, redo it in Broadway, and they were basically recasting almost half of the cast. So they were so the, a lot of the, the the London actors were staying there, a lot of the New York actors were taking over. Brian Cranston as the the main role was staying in, mm. but um, she said basically they had two weeks of rehearsal, and then they opened, and that was it. And this was this was even you know this was Brian Cranston hadn't done the role in like three months, mm. but the way that the way that Eva Van Hove works even in the London premiere they only had maybe three weeks of rehearsal. 
He trusts mm-hmm. his actors so much. That's what the beautiful thing is. He trusts his actors and he casts really well and he does all of his research. So he's got all the things answered beforehand. Every single question an, ask, an actor could ask, he's already got figured out. He's ready to go. He doesn't waste any time because he spends eight months working on a play before he gets into the rehearsal room. Well, look, look I, I think we should have a conversation because Julian uh, Elijah Martinez is going to come and have a chat with us um, in one of our... One of our interview set slots, and so what? Well, and he he was in he was in that company on Broadway. Mm. Um, you also can see him on um, uh, Wu Tang, the American Saga. He's the he's the handsome older brother that goes to jail, and he's the drug dealer. He's amazing. He's amazing, y'all. Um, but yeah, he'll come in and and have a chat with us, um, and tell us all about us. Give us the give us the tea on what it's like to be a, a Eva Von Hova actor. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I, but and I, you know, the other thing that I think is really exciting about Von Hoven, I think is really straying away from our dramaturgic conversation, but just that he gets, all right, and this is, okay, so now, all right, so now we're really getting into it because it goes into the sense of privilege, you know, the sense of white male privilege. He gets an opportunity to fail. You know that David Bowie uh, piece from, you know, from, from, from the word of mouth was, 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 wasn't too good. Right. And so mm-hmm. he has the, 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 the opportunity to to fail in, in these ways, you know, and yeah. I want to see more opportunities for people that are not <laughs> cis heterosexual white males, you know. Um, yeah. But, you know, how you know, I, I'm a broken record when it comes to that, but I'm still going to say it. <laughs> I think I think what's interesting is um, he has been working. We're talking about Eva Van Hove again. He's been working since the 80s. You know, he's been making theater in the Netherlands since the 80s, and it's only in the last six, seven years that he finally was kind of accepted in New York theater. Because I had seen his work um, back in 2008, 2009, I think. I, I saw um, he'd, done, he'd done The the Miser, he'd done Moliere, he had done something else. I can't remember what else I'd seen. I, I'd seen a couple of his things, and I remember people just kind of hating his work. Hating the way that he did. I mean, there's a very there's a very famous story about his more stately mansions, his O'Neill, the way he took O'Neill and uh, with Joan McIntosh in the role, and that the play opens up and she just does this. It's a ten page monologue, and she does she just does it as fast as she can, just you know, la, 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 just as fast <laughs> as she could, and people just started leaving the theater. And it's you know it's a very apocryphal tale. People have told I've heard this story told a uh, hundred times by people who who saw it or didn't see it. I mean you know whether you were in the audience or not, you know the story. He he was an iconoclast. He is an iconoclast. He takes things that you hold dear and uh, you know kind of shows you them in a new way. And you're right. He he probably has that privilege coming from the the uh, state theaters in Europe, the protection mm-hmm. of doing that for the longest time, and then coming in, you know, being the kind of the director du jour um, in New York theater in the 2000s, mm. 2010s. And yeah, I can't imagine a person of color or a young person being given the same opportunity uh, to to do that. Yeah, but yeah, my times hopefully. are changing, y'all. <laughs> Big wheel keep on turning. <laughs> Uh, but I think we should take a break um, because I want to talk about some really poor dramaturgy next, yeah? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> think of your list, make your list while we all listen to some wonderful Purple Planet and then we'll come back, yeah? Yeah. We'll see you after the break. 
So now we're going to talk about really bad dramaturgy. Yeah. Do you have one that's that's coming up for you? I've seen so many bad plays. I can't, you know, I can't. It, when, when, when Stephen was talking about when actors get lines wrong, that you just die a little inside. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I've been in a you know in a play or i've seen a play and i've just gone everything you have everything available to you why would you have made this choice why have you gone down this road i've seen i mean for me i think uh i think uh, this will be a broken record for people who know me i'm always wondering did anybody think about the audience's experience at any point in time Mm. for this and so um, everything might be going well on stage, but it's just, you know, if if I get ahead of the script, if it's just too confusing, you know, it's I, I love watching an audience being inside of an audience to kind of see how they're feeling, because I may have I may have my own feeling about a play, but everybody else. But if everybody else is enjoying it, then it's a one off. OK, fine. You know, I am, uh, quote unquote, a trained professional. So I'm looking at different things. But if I start to see people like. Lots of people looking at the program, looking around, checking their watch. Then something's gone wrong, and you know, I, a lot of times it's not the play; it's it's the thing around the play. I remember watching this play. Um, I remember that I was, I think I was still in high school. That's how much of an impact it had on me. Um, <laughs> Damn, it was that bad. Yeah, because because <laughs> uh, my 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 best friend uh, Josh Waterstone, Joshua Waterstone, and I went to go see a play at our favorite theater in Atlanta, Georgia, where we're from, Seven Stages. And you know, we'd seen we'd seen amazing stuff there, stuff that's still on my top ten list of theater. Like the you know, the reason that I kind of really kind of solidified I'm going to be an actor was this play called My Mother's Courage by George Tabori. And it was mm. it was a gorgeous, beautiful. I mean, my aesthetics are basically stolen from that show from from to this day. Um, and I no, I think I think maybe we had we were in college. I think we were back from college, and I think we were visiting, and we were trying to just catch a play. And I think it was like a you know we could it was like a December we could catch this play, and we were looking for like greatness because we loved this theater, and this play landed like a like a ton of bricks in that it didn't make any sense or any context to this theater, the audience that normally attends this theater, or um, <laughs> or really the, the marketing material for this play. It was it was like it was like putting a sitcom on stage. And you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Sure, fine, pure entertainment. But this is not what this theater was known for. This is not what this audience comes to see. This is not what this marketing material does. And it, we were lost. We convinced ourselves. I'm serious. We had convinced ourselves that it was actually a trick, that the that the play was actually happening in the audience. 
and that the play on stage was just a setup. We we had a whole like idea about this. Because, oh my god! Because there was no way that this bad play that didn't make any sense dramaturgically, <laughs> d- directorially, acting wise, there was no way that this play was actually happening. And Josh and I had convinced ourselves that we were a select audience that were called in to experience to witness this new type of theater making oh we were so convinced and then we we stayed out afterwards we stayed out afterwards and we realized no it was just a really bad play that nobody really truly cared about anything in it to put it up i i you know i don't remember the name of it because i instantly forgot it but i remember the experience of going hmm could i set a play in the audience and have the audience not understand that they're in the play anyway Wow. Well, this this reminds me. Okay, look. So I'm going to confess that I, it was probably my show <laughs> that I was acting in. No, <laughs> no but I'm just have to say it because there, there, I have everyone has that one show that like <laughs> they will never ever do again. And it was uh, the play was called The Breaking Light, mm. and it was a new, it was part of this a new work uh, uh, festival. That was happening in New York, and then it was, uh, then it was also in Los Angeles, and I had just graduated from uh, NYU undergrad, and I and I had I had a mentor that was that was performing in it, and uh, it was one of their students that was directing it, so I was like, okay, well, I'll be okay here. So I trust this, I trust this person, you know. Um, and by the way, I have another mentor that saw it and came up to me after that performance and said, "Don't you ever do another play like this again?" And I was like, "But I, I got, I got a free plane ticket to L.A. to see my best friend." And he was like, "I'll buy you a plane ticket to L.A. if you need to see your friend. Don't you ever do another play like this again?" And so, <laughs> and so, I think that's kind of like what like has set my aesthetic for like you know walking up and throwing you know throwing my program onto the onto the stage and walking out. You know what I mean? Mm. So this this play. Now, we're talking about dramaturgy here, which had none, okay? Yeah. Had none, and everything was on the surface. And essentially, the story was about um, motivational speakers. And these motivational speakers who travel across the country to, uh, I think it was even for global warming. It was like motivational speakers for global warming. It was was really convoluted, right? And... And so I had gotten cast as um, one of uh, these factory workers, and I was playing a woman. So, uh, and and uh, and I was with another actor, and she was amazing. She was amazing. She and I had we had we we pretty much stole the show because it just became like a com like a comedy routine for the two of us because the the rest of the play was such shit, and the lead actress. Oh my God, she was so bad, y'all. Her range was soft and loud. <laughs> <laughs> really soft or really loud how, how would you like me to do this scene soft or loud that was her range uh, soft. <laughs> and then the next one do loud so so she's like so she's like supposed to be like the the head of this company or one of the heads of this company and and we had uh and the, the and i'd always like when we first did the <laughs> So we're talking about dramaturgy, right? So when we first started getting the set, I was like, I don't understand why we have school desks in a corporate office. 
so the set designer had created these desks that could like lift up and you could put stuff in them like mm-hmm. a, like a school desk yeah, right yeah. Um, but they were made out of like it, the legs were made out of like you know a stand up stand for like eating and watching television <laughs> so, and then and then the rest of the the rest of the um the desk was like uh like these the styrofoam plastic covered uh kind of uh, material and i was like i don't understand why we have these kinds of desks in a corporate office really confused right mm. and their so their logic was it's really easy to pack them up and put them into the plane when we and get to la <laughs> that is not a dramaturgical reason that has nothing to do with this with the play as written <laughs> so we had these desks right and so we had I had survived this play in LA and, and in New York, and now I'm surviving the play in LA. And it was just so bad. But the best part of all happened on our very last show in LA. And uh, the director comes out <laughs> and she's like, okay, so I just want to let you guys know that I'm not into any of that last show business. <laughs> but if you want to do something, let me know if it's funny and I'll let you do it. I was like, mm-hmm. what the fuck? I was like, what? I was like, I'm a classically trained actor and the director's coming and saying this to me. I was like, I was mortified. I was mortified. So then I was like, and, and something deep inside of me said, oh my God, something's going to go wrong. She just opened up. She just opened up the door for all the tomfoolery to be experienced in this performance. So the show gets started and I'm in the back, you know, getting into character with, with the other actor and we're, um, you know, and part of our, our, you know, preparation was we put on our makeup and we just like ad lib and, and, and have fun. And I was like listening to what was going on on stage. And I was like, She's exceptionally loud today. Like, she's normally loud in this part, but she's really loud today. And I'm like, something's going to happen. I don't know. Something's going to happen. So, so she ends up, she's so loud, she hits one of those desks. <clears throat> and there was this... <laughs> I already know where this is going. This, there was this glass bowl jar that was full of these like candies, like balls of candies or marbles or whatever. It's, I just remember they, they rolled a lot, and it and uh, and then the legs broke, and it was like it was like tilted, like slanted sideways. Mm-hmm. And the director runs backstage, runs to me, and says, "Do something." like do something what are you talking about i'm not even in the scene i'm not even in the scene adam i'm not even in the scene and so (laughs) so then i go i'm I'm told to go out because uh uh to clean up the floor so i'm i'm a factory worker i've gone so i go out and i just start ad-libbing i'm like I don't even. I don't even work in this department. They had me come cleaning up the floor, and I said it like ad libbing, right? And then um, I uh, watch the uh, uh, table, and it's like wobbling. And then it's and it was like slow motion, 
slow motion and it the legs go and the whole thing falls apart and the, the glass shatters on the uh, floor and the actor she, who had broken the whole set she was on backstage and I was like it was it was madness so then I I went backstage and grabbed her and threw her back out on stage say see what you made see what you did so she's out there she gets like she's like all doe-eyed and looking out and like it is a mess so so I end up going out there I clean up the whole mess with total attitude right so they don't have a desk and I'm like okay this is a mess so I'm back there getting ready okay and uh the director comes back again and I was like what She's like, we need a desk. Do something. I was like, make a desk. What do you want me? What do you want me to do? Pull it out of my ass? A lot of things can fit up there, but a desk cannot. So, so then she goes. She's looking around in the backstage. She's looking around backstage. She's looking back around backstage, and she goes, "Use that." And it was a like jumble size cardboard box that had pampers written on the side of it. <sighs> this is a corporate office. She goes, use that. Take that out there. I said, like, are you kidding me? She said, take it out there. We need a desk. Okay. So I went back out there and I'm ad-libbing. And Adam, it's the first and only time that I ever felt an audience hate me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... It was like, I, you know how you can, you know, when you speak and there's an audience, you can kind of feel the, the bounce back and mm-hmm. feedback from an audience. Yeah. I would speak and it was like a black hole. It just got sucked into the void. And it was like, it was the worst experience ever. And that, and then the show just went, it just got even crazier. Like another actor starts threatening me on stage in our scene. He gets all hot and bothered. Like he's going to fight me. And I was like, what is happening? What is happening? So, that's my bad dramaturgy experience, my bad amateur acting experience, my bad everything experience. Yeah, really. So, the message of the story is, don't take on a play just because you want to take the travel benefits. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the takeaway, folks. That's the takeaway. <laughs> wow. And also, do your research. Do your research. I, and my, and my and I, honestly, the research that I needed to do is I needed to be a little bit more clear about who was directing and who was writing. I just went off of you know just my trust of of my teacher who was performing in the show. But you know, you live, you learn. Well, and that, I was young. Well, that's the, young. that's the interesting. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? That I mean, that this time period has, has exposed to us is we just take jobs. That people are just taking jobs because they have to take jobs that, you know, Mm. they wouldn't normally do that. That there's, there's, everybody has integrity, you know, people have a sense of what is good and what is bad, but you know, you wanted to, you wanted to to travel and that was what it was. Or, you know, you, you had, you had to make your weeks so that you could keep your insurance for your, for your union. Like people. Hence your production of A Christmas Carol. Well, yeah. I mean, and so. Bad work continues to get made where there is no time to do dramaturgy. We, we have to make a desk out of styrofoam and Pampers boxes. We don't have time to hire a dramaturg or do research. What are you talking about? Clearly, it, it makes <laughs> sense. Let's just go. Let's just do it. But I think this time period is going to upend that. Like we can no longer put up crappy work. I don't think crappy work – if anything, I don't think crappy work survives this time period, thank goodness. I think, I think crappy work doesn't get the support on the other side of this. 
I think crappy work is the first thing that goes mm-hmm. and work that's unmotivated, uh, mm-hmm. unresearched, um, that doesn't have something to say. I think on the other side of this, if you don't have something to say, then it is not worth my time, my money, or my effort. Because there are so mm. many things that I can mm. I can look at that are so much better, entertainment wise, uh, news wise, uh, you know, research wise. That you want me to drive across town to your jewel box of a theater for some some you know sitcom of a play where it's just meh, really? And I'm going to pay fifty dollars plus for that? No, that doesn't exist anymore. That does not exist anymore. So well, the first that was thing the to thing to that. I, well, I learned that in living in New York, and you know, you know, beating the pavement and 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 jobbing and trying, you know, trying to get my you know career started after school. That like there was so much. Remember backstage, mm-hmm. backstage, um, the backstage magazine yeah. where you know people who weren't equity actors where they could find they could find um, auditions and and plays to be a part of. And I would get cast in all these things, and then I'd go to the first rehearsal, and I'd be, "Oh hell no!" And I, I, I just leave, you know. And it's, you know, it, it's hard because you want to continue to develop your craft if you're not, if you're not a union actor, you know, uh, f- uh, actors' equity for for stage. Um, SAG is a great. I, I love SAG. SAG is an awesome, awesome, awesome union, and they they really take care of you. Um, but like what, one of the things that was so difficult was actors equity preventing, um, equity actors from working on, you know, uh, experimental work and developing. Yeah. So, you know, I hope, I hope one day that those kinds of things will, you know, evolve and change so actors can continue to develop in their craft. But Mm -hmm. like, it's hard when you first get out of drama school and an undergraduate specifically, Mm. And if you and if you're you know if you don't have a management team or if you have a an agent that you know that is you know, God, I wonder what's going to happen after COVID the relationships between actors and agents and management teams if there's going to be a little bit more um, vulnerability from from uh, agents like you know the the lower tier agents so, you know I was working with more of the lower tier agents um, and. And how that and how that relationship how the relationship is uh, developed, mm. you know. Um, but yeah, and I, I digress as I always do. But <laughs> just thinking about these things, you know, and and it come and it, it's it's coming out of of dramaturgy, which is crazy because you gotta be clear about why you're saying and doing what you're doing. You need to know why, and it doesn't take much effort to to do the work because essentially for for art the the freedom is in the details the more you have to draw from the more curiosity and play you'll have with the form you're working with so um dramaturgy for me it dramaturgs and stage managers oh yeah for, <laughs> for sure. me are at the top of the of the pecking order yeah. like stage managers and dramaturgs are really really important to me mm-hmm. you know I love having uh, I love having arguments. I love having debates in a room. I will always, you know, I'll I'll take the other side of the argument just to keep an argument going, just to sharpen the point further. I love having uh, a different point of view than mine. Somebody that will that will be a devil's advocate to my idea to point out why mm. my why my idea might be wrong. Not that it is wrong, but that it might be wrong, so that I can either change my idea or sharpen my idea. So I like having. That person there that's sole purpose is to stick up for the play. 
my job as a director is, is a whole, right? Mm. I, I got to take care of the actor. I've got to take care of the design. I've got to take care of the world that we're trying to create. But the dramaturg's sole responsibility is to stick up for the play and to make sure that the play's being served, that, that the integrity of the play is maintained, that no matter what I throw at it, peanut butter or whatever, that it still makes sense in that play. And so I like having that 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 divergent, possible, possibly sometimes point of view going, ah, but have you thought about that? Because I'm, I'm, I'm sound enough in my ideas to be okay, to be pointed in a different direction, to be told I'm wrong or to be told that I've not thought that through. You know, I might disagree with it and I might ignore it and move on, but I like having that voice in the room, somebody to remind me, have you thought about this, Adam? And, and also there's, it, I think the flexibility of how you can utilize a dramaturg as well, because mm-hmm. they, they can also be, mm-hmm. you know, an assistant director, they can be an assistant designer, you know, a lot of, a lot of people that, that go into dramaturgy, uh, have interest in other areas, have yeah, they, they they may be a director, they may be an actor, they may be a designer, but they want to really get deeply into the dramaturgical aspects of of creating theater. Mm. Um, so I'm always I'm always, you know me I'm always one for drawing on everyone's talents and and the, the, if you have more to bring to the table, do it mm. you know do it because theater is communal and the more communal the environment for your rehearsal process. Um, it gets felt by your audience as well. Yeah. I think that's a great place for us to take uh, another break. And yeah, sounds good. On the other side of this, I think it's time for questions and provocations. Yeah. Ooh, here we go. Yeah. Come on, Purple Planet, take it away. See you after the break, guys. <laughs> So, provocation time, Adam. Mm-hmm. What's your provocation? You have a dramaturgical provocation. I do actually. Uh, it's I, I. It's not a not a question. Normally, I have questions. It's a provocation. I want you all to do something. I Uh-oh. want you to. I want everybody to go, and I want you to read this article. It's on CultureBot, um, CultureBot.org, um, and I want you to. I mean, you don't even have to go to that place. You can just type in "reframing the critic for the 21st century." Dramaturgy, mm. advocacy, and engagement. This is Ooh. a this is an essay from 2012. So at this point, it's it, it's it's old. It's old news in terms of how fast news goes by. But I just came across this earlier this summer, and it's it's you know something that we try to do with the company anyway. But it's putting a name to what has always been happening. Um, I had uh, a really close friend in grad school. Allie Houseworth, who um, was a brilliant marketing person. And, you know, our relationship was basically us 
butting heads and trying to figure out how to engage an audience. Her from a marketing point of view, me from a directing point of view, until we realized it was basically the same thing. And she mm. went on to work at Woolly Mammoth Theater in Washington, D.C. And Woolly Mammoth and D.C. Theater has started to do this stuff that I'm about to talk about oh, a lot. And it's called Auditurgy. It's a horrible name. But it basically Ooh, means... Auditurgy. It's a horrible They sound like name. PhD students. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Auditurgy means audience dramaturgy. And the idea behind mm. and the idea behind this is how do I prepare an audience for possibly a new play that they have no um, no reference point for, which is a lot of what Woolly okay. Mammoth is doing. Or how do I how do I prepare an audience for a classical play in the twenty first century? Anyway, this article, everybody, again, reframing the critic for the 21st century, dramaturgy, advocacy, and engagement on CultureBot. Please read it. It's brilliant. Basically, what he's what the what the author is is arguing for is saying the dramaturg should be the new critic. The dramaturg should be in the production, criticizing and offering advice. They should be uh, they should be an advocate for the audience and the play, and there should be about engagement, how to engage the audience with the play hmm. outside of the actual play itself, before you come in, after you leave. The second you find hmm. out, the second you find out about a play, the play has begun. Everything you learn True. about it, all the marketing material, interacting with the staff outside, is there a pre-show anything? Then the show happens. The show is just a centralizing event. And then after the show, is it just a talkback? Is that all we're doing? Everybody does talkback now. That's all, that, that's all you're going to do. What else can you do? What what advocacy can you do for, for the play and for the audience? It's a brilliant, brilliant article. It's long, but I, I think mm. they're really pointing out a lot of things. And it's so I, I, I encourage everybody to read so that. So make yourself a cup of tea yeah. or a pot of tea. Ex- a pot of tea. Read. Exactly. <laughs> Booty, you have well, a question I, or provocation? I think I do. I think I do. Um. And it's one of those things where I want the actors out there to go and uh, pick one of the monologues that they do all the time that they know so well, that they think they know so well. Think yeah? they know so well, yeah. <laughs> and I, I want you to, I want you to, uh, to change your hat, take off your actor hat, and put on your dramaturg hat. And I want you to be the dramaturg for the play that that monologue belongs to. Mm. I want you to do all the dramaturgy for it. And then when you feel like you've done an, you've done a, an adequate job of, you know, being the dramaturg for the play, um, I want you to go back into that monologue. And I want you to perform that monologue with all the dramaturgical knowledge that's embedded in your subconscious after doing the research and see what... Uh, you learn about the piece, the character, and yourself as an actor. And if you found more freedom in having more detail to draw from, from the dramaturgical research. So that's my provocation for you. Um, and I'm happy for you to um, send me a video or something. You know, you could email us a video, a link to a video. You could do a before and after. This is before the dramaturgy, and this is after the dramaturgy. <laughs> And I won't, and you know, and I, I won't, I won't give you any feedback on it. But I'll just, I just want to look at it, <laughs> see if I was right. 
Look, you can send you can send these uh, you can send a, a, a voice note to uh, speakpipe.com backslash theater of others. Again, speakpipe.com backslash theater of others, theater with an R-E, all one word. Uh, you can leave a, a minute and a half voice note there. You can if you don't want to be heard, you can send us an email, podcast at theaterofothers.com. You can even go onto our Facebook page and leave a message there. We will take anything from anybody. We love hearing from people. We love that we had enough people to do a Q&A kind of podcast last time. Um, and we really love hearing from everybody and, and hearing what your thoughts are and what, what, what we are provoking in you. I changed my mind about my provocation. Uh-oh. I want you... I, look, if you, if you go to all that effort to do a monologue twice like that, I would be happy to give you feedback. <laughs> I would be happy to give you feedback. I realized, you know, and I, that was... Listen, and that was just the little, the little, you know, little nervous booty going, oh my God, you know, I don't want them to think that, you know, I'm full of myself and that I want to, you know, show them how to do something the way I think they should do it. But hey, look, I'm in the position that I'm in for a reason Mm. and I'm going to take space. If you want me to, I'll give you feedback. If you're going to go for the effort, I'll go for the effort. That's a deal. Booty, I'm going to ask a question. I know we're we're here at the end of the uh, podcast, but I just thought of this question and why is it that actors dread research so much. <laughs> okay. I think and this is the thing that's really this is the thing that's really challenging. It's different because our our bodies are actually our instrument. Mm. So we we move through this instrument all of our lives and we re- and we reference it all day long. Yeah. For a director, it's something external. For a painter, it's something external. For a musician, you have you have your instrument. That's something external. But for an actor, it's your whole body. And what and as Jonathan Major says, you gotta be willing to give something up and it's gonna hurt. You gotta be willing to get hurt, you know, and the cause the best acting hurts. You're giving something up. It's super vulnerable. And depending at the, the, you know, the, the level of commitment and experience and um, um, opportunity to do these kinds of things, be up in acting and performing, it's, it's easy to just kind of phone it in until you hear action because the work requires you to be authentic always and to touch these things that may be quite uncomfortable for you in, in, in any other circumstance. But this is your imagination. So it's about training your imagination. You really need to train your imagination. And so then when your imagination is fully committed and your body is transforming and your body is, the, the, behavior, is, the behavior is moving you, that's, that's, where the, that's where it all is. And you can step away from that because it's your imagination. But that's, I think that essentially, that's why actors tend to be lazy because we don't want to go there all the time because mm. you know because it hurts but if you want to do this business it's going to hurt and you have to be willing to get hurt that's beautiful that's a great way to that's a great place for us to stop i think that's um <laughs> that's the thing that that makes that makes a lot of sense to me i i never have this problem with young directors training young directors or designers they love the research. They'll spend all the time in the research. They're afraid to get into the room. They're afraid to, <laughs> to start the work. Mm. Whereas the mm-hmm. actor, yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah. So we get y'all. We understand. So 
Have a conversation with us. Shout out. Be vulnerable. Put yourself out there. We'll receive you. Yeah. <laughs> so on that note, I think we should go. Yeah. <laughs> it's so good to see you, Adam. Um, it's always great to see you as always. And, you know, it's not like I'm not going to see you tomorrow for rehearsal or the day after that for <laughs> rehearsal also. But anytime I can spend with you is always great. <laughs> Yeah, gratitude, baby. Grat a motherfucking tood. Oh, so, so uh, our next podcast is going to. So, you know, we're heading today. We were working with the director, even though it was not always about the director. But we were in the director's land talking about dramaturgy. Next week, we're in playwright land talking about text. And I think, Ooh. I think maybe, maybe just maybe we could share a little bit of the text we're working on next week. Oh, like what kind of text? I think what you are currently working on right now. I mean, I don't want to give any spoilers away, but I think we can talk (laughs) about how we're working on it. Because that's that's what we're talking about next week is text, specifically text. And um, we're working with a play that's currently still being written. And we can talk about how we are dissecting this text and how you as an actor are working on it, how I as a director am working on text. When you get new text, I think this will be really interesting and a a little bit of a marketing tool for us (laughs) as well. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, since everyone is quarantined anyway, they'll be, they'll be available. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Okay. On that note, bye everyone. Bye Adam. Bye Booty. Bye everybody. Bye. Thanks for joining us this week on the Theater Brothers Podcast. Make sure to visit our website, theaterbrothers.org, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or via RSS, so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. A special thank you to Purple Planet for the music you've heard. The Theater Brothers creates a shared community of artists and audiences for the purposes of exploring the most profound issues of our lives and times. We believe the play watches the audience. The audience is necessary and they are witness to what happens. And you get to be witness to us making that happen. The purpose of this podcast is to open up our process and let you in. We're peeling back the curtain, so to speak, and encouraging you to follow along, to ponder, prod, and question. To join us and criticize us if need be. Being a witness is no passive task and requires much from you. Are you up for the journey? Be sure to tune in next week for our next journey. <laughs> <laughs>